Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Dr. Paul Hinlicky. Um, I've spoken with Dr. Hinlicky uh, record-breaking three times, so this is the third time I've had a guest on the podcast. Um, and Dr. Hinlicky and I are going to talk today about his farm in Virginia. So this podcast is a little bit of a departure from my typical interviews. Um, some of you may remember um, I interviewed Jacob Wood on his farm in Ohio, and he and what sort of he saw as the overlap between theology and farming. Uh, I believe that one was last summer, uh, but this summer I found that uh, Dr. Hinlicky also runs about 30 cattle um, at, a, at a sort of a ranch farm uh, in over 100 acres in Virginia. And I was very curious about how he saw the overlap between his work in farming and uh, the life of, uh, of a theologian. Uh, so um, just as a little disclaimer, some of you may be less interested in that, uh, but I found the conversation very stimulating and very helpful um, to think about uh, the overlap, sort of aura and labora, as the Benedictines would say, that is prayer and and work. Um, so how does one, you know, think about both of these tasks, um, sort of the active life and the contemplative life in the theological uh, tradition? Um, we have several episodes that are, are due out here in the coming months. Um, we'll be talking to Dr. Benjamin Laird about the creation of the canon, Dr. Andrew Hofer about the power of patristic preaching, um, and, and a few other things. Uh, if you would, please be so kind. Um, if you want to go to www.patreon.com slash ahoct, A-H- OCT. Uh, we are trying to raise some funds to pay for some of our upcoming costs um, and trying to help uh, Grant Bellchamber out, who's been my assistant, helping me work work on this podcast. And he's done a lot of groundwork. So um, just trying to, uh, you know, keep the show going um, and help Grant uh, as he finishes school. So um, if you would be so kind uh, to, um, you know, donate even a dollar, um, you know, I like to say that if every person who donated uh, donated even just, or every person who listened donated even just a dollar, we would have uh, enough to cover our costs, um, uh, well well above uh, enough just to cover our costs. Um, so if you think about it, a um, dollar on Patreon um, for each listener would go a long way. Um, yeah, we'll have some more stuff coming up about that. I think we're going to do a book giveaway um, and a few other things uh, to try to sort of get the word out about the podcast. Um, so uh, be looking out for that. Um, this has been a longer than normal introduction, and I want to say thank you to all of our faithful listeners um, and people who have commented, rated the, uh, the podcast, reviewed. Um, Grant and I are just blown away by how many people listen and enjoy the podcast, so um, we're just so grateful for, for this uh, group of people that have, are enjoying, uh, you know, thinking deeply about their faith. Um, all right, so here's my conversation with Dr. Paul Hinlicky. Well, today I'm uh, have the pleasure of speaking again with uh, Dr. Paul Hinlicky, um, and Dr. Uh, Hinlicky and I have spoken about his book on um, Stefano Suski. Uh, we've talked about uh, his book on divine complexity, um, and then we became friends on Facebook, <laughs> and I saw that he was also a farmer. Um, I've done one other podcast with a guy who's a medieval theologian in Ohio and also has a small family kind of farm. Um, and, uh, and we talked about it one time, Jacob Wood. Um, so, and then, you know, if, if people listen closely, you'll know that, that I 
get really interested uh, about, uh, you know, sort of questions about food and agriculture uh, in, in some other podcasts. But I wanted to talk to Dr. Hinlicky about his uh, his farm because it seemed uh, particularly. I mean, it's a hundred acres, a big farm, um, and uh, I don't know. I had no idea. I just thought of you as a you know as an academic theologian. I'm like, oh, he's got this whole other life. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Chad. I'm also, of course, been a pastor, and when you spend your entire life dealing with people, whether it's uh, pastorally with their issues and concerns and problems, or when you're a professor dealing with uh, students and their issues and concerns, and the rest of your life is spent, like you can see in the background of my screen here, (laughs) just like yours, buried in books and (laughs) composition, writing, and so forth. Getting your hands dirty is a blessed relief. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I, and well, and just, um, I'm a suburban kid. Uh, so like all of this, I think part of the reason it fascinates me is cause yeah, we were not, you know, we did not have our hands in the soil. I had to mow the lawn. Um, and, and so then even that would annoy me. Um, and, and, <laughs> and now I actually, I, I realized, uh, this year, uh, and last year when we first got our chickens that I could just dump all the, uh, grass into the chicken coop and we'd kind of do some composting, but they could eat the grass, um, as they, as it was composting. And I was like, well, this is great. Now my lawn actually has like a purpose. Um, it helps. <laughs> and, and, you know, so I, I kind of learned to appreciate that, but even that work with my hands, when I was doing all the, you know, when I do my academic stuff you're right it is nice to to see something you know that you've made kind of and and yeah yeah there's not so much deferred gratification as there is in academic work right right but you've Uh, got you've already got the essence of it right there the kind of agriculture that's needed i think uh in terms of christian uh social responsibility and land stewardship is can simply be it's termed nowadays regenerative agriculture and it's based upon the natural cycle in which livestock you're in your case chickens uh, consumes um, vegetation and then processes it and poops out fertilizer all over the place and that is in essence the the cycle that you need so every year chad um, I, with my tractor, I scoop up the remnants of the hay feeding of the cattle during the winter, and I push that into a big pile to compost all summer long through the heat season. And then in the fall, I truck it all over into my garden and dump it and kind of scatter it, break it up somewhat into my garden. And at that point, when the garden's done growing, I release the chickens into the garden and let them scratch it all winter long. Yeah. And so by the time I till it into the soil uh, in the spring to start the garden, I don't ever have to buy a a chemical fertilizer at all. It's all right there, uh, increasing the health of the soil. And and, uh, just um, again, sort of like I have just like lots of curious questions. How big is your garden? I would say it's about um, a third of an acre. You know, it's not a, I, I, I learned a long time ago, something that's called intensive gardening. Okay. 
and intensive gardening means that you have such rich soil, so nutrient-rich, uh, that you uh, sow um, your vegetables very close together. Okay. So that as they grow, they shade out the weeds. Mm. Now, we do use um, black plastic mulch okay. on things like tomatoes and peppers because that retains moisture and it concentrates heat. Um, and uh, sometimes with some other crops too. But basically, by by intensively gardening, uh, you can control weeds uh, through the canopy that the vegetables themselves create. That makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of, you know, the first, like we just have chickens, but uh, we like, and, and I, like we first had chickens, we were feeding them grain. Um, and that was, you know, that was all I knew to do. And then I started reading about composting and things and we've got a bag and I'm growing a wa- like we're growing watermelons out of like one of our feed bags that's made entirely from chicken compost. And I, <laughs> I like I've been joking. I've got a picture up that I like I send my family and stuff. And I was like, I'm growing a watermelon in chicken poop. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I I mean, I know I wrote a dissertation, but honestly, like the the idea that, you know, like we've got no fertilizer, we've got no pesticide, we got none of that. It's just what's left over from when the chickens process uh, the, the grass and other things. Um, and then they turn over the the browns that I have in there with them. And I put them all in a bag, and now watermelons are growing. I can't That's believe fantastic. it. Fantastic, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm of Slavic background, so we love our sauerkraut, mm-hmm. which in our language is called kapusta. Okay. Um, and um, there's a kind of cabbage called the Murdoch. It's a variety of cabbage called the Murdoch. And it looks like a conehead, <laughs> you know, from the Saturday Night Live coneheads. Sure. That's how it grows. It's very it's very common in Europe. That's where we first learned about it. But it makes the most delicate, delicious, and crisp um, sauerkraut. Okay. So we uh, just, just to illustrate on the chicken fertilizer business, we cleaned out the, the coop last uh, summer and um, – spread the this compost in an area we had three rows of this cabbage and broccoli and we produced out of that patch um, 25 quarts of sauerkraut that are now in our garage refrigerator wow. waiting for our consumption <laughs> that's crazy we actually i mean i know we are so you're in virginia right so right. you're um and and we're in missouri i don't remember if we're in the same growing season are we 5b i think maybe um, no, i think we're in 7a i think okay um and so but we actually we we had not done a lot of broccoli we got broccoli rob that grew very well but our broccoli we could not get to really uh to produce the we got lots of uh, leaves but not the sort of the i want to call it fruit but um, right. the vegetable um, uh, i wasn't I sure what happened but do you have to do you have the problem with cabbage worms attacking them we do sometimes. We have to be pretty vigilant uh, about. We use diatomaceous earth sometimes right. and some other stuff to try to limit that. But yeah, we we're kind of we're. I mean, it's a, you know it's a small enough garden. I think you know we have less than a about a quarter acre or something. Um, uh, but like in terms of our backyard. So, but my wife is often in there trying to do a lot of that stuff by hand. You know, our the trick we learned about that 
was to buy agricultural fabric, which is the okay. kind of white fabric that goes over hoop houses, you know. Uh-huh. And you, you got to get a little bit heavier weave, the kind that they use in the, in the colder weather. Uh, but you can simply drape that over your 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 brassicas and eggplants too get attacked terribly by uh-huh. bugs. Just you just cover them, and uh, you can then uh, use ground staples to secure that around the perimeter. That keeps all the insects out, and the the rain and the sun comes right through it, grows right up under this cover. Okay, and you hmm. never have to use any uh, pesticides. Interesting. Awesome. Well, so how, okay. So you, you've been telling me a little bit about regenerative agriculture. It follows the cycles of, um, of the sort of the natural, um, processes. So how did you, I mean, were you always involved in this? Uh, like what, did you always have an interest in this? How did you start learning about regenerative agriculture and, well, and uh, practicing you know, it? Year, when we were kids, my father bought an abandoned dairy farm in upstate New York and we spent our summers up there and that always, kind of instilled in me this love of the country. And when I was a graduate student in New York City at Union Seminary, you know, the city life really started getting to me. And mm-hmm. I I longed to be up. My parents retired up to that place. Okay. And so with my mother, I started a garden up there, and that got me really interested. And at that time, Chad, I read the book of Helen and Scott Nearing. Okay. Helen and Scott Nearing, who were a couple of uh, socialists in New York City area in the 20s and 30s, I think. And during the Great Red Scare, they decided to get out of New York City and they bought an abandoned farm in Vermont or New Hampshire, I don't remember which. And the whole book is how they they turned this into a sustainable living for themselves. Uh-huh. They had the formula of uh, four hours bread, bread money, four hours recreation, uh, or 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 personal pursuits like reading, and four hours social time, and that was how they divided up their day. And then they became kind of a, a cult-like center for all these young people, hippies of my generation, <laughs> looking for an alternative to the suburban lifestyle that you described in the beginning. So that was kind of my inspiration way back when. And when we moved uh, to Roanoke College in 1999, we bought a house in the suburbs and I felt like a I was in a gilded cage from the get-go. And I started looking for land in the country. And we were lucky enough to stumble across this uh, worn-out old um, mountain farm uh, land and start buying it piece by piece. And in 2005, we built our greenhouse up here. I say green not because it's colored green, but because we followed a lot of ecological principles. Okay. Berming it into the north side and uh, uh, exposing it to sunlight uh, on the south side. We have a large solar system that produces 1,500 kilowatts per month. So, Virtually all of our energy needs are come from the solar panel. Um, it's got, you know, 18-inch walls that are it's kind of in styrofoam injected with concrete. Okay. So it's a very, very well insulated. So that, and we've lived here ever since. And 
how did I get involved in farming? I, we lived here for a number of years, and I began thinking about what I could do with the land. And I realized that with a little bit of work, I would have 20 to 25 acres of pasture land. Now, I don't have any hay land. I don't have land for cutting my own hay. So okay. I would have to buy hay for the winter. Uh-huh. But I could work on these pastures and um, over time make them productive enough and stockpiling uh, uh, grass to graze them into the winter months that I could really minimize the importing of hay. Mm-hmm. But it, w- it was pointed out to me, Chad, that when you're buying that hay to feed the cattle in the winter, you're also buying fertilizer right. <laughs> that you can spread, you know. So I said, well, that makes a lot of sense. So that's, And I want to just say something ecologically about this because there's a lot of uh, nonsense being propagated about beef being a source of methane and, and, and greenhouse gases. Now, I don't doubt that's true in these vast industrial dairies or, or, or stockyards where, where they're stuffed with corn or, or non, non-natural diets to increase their industrial production. Yeah. So I think there's a critique to be made there. Um, though, of course, if you abolish that, you'd starve half the population uh, in a couple of years or, or make them eat soy and green. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but with 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 my kind of um, regenerative agriculture, the uh, the grasslands are themselves a huge carbon sink. They mm-hmm. just they suck carbon in and they store it and they don't release it, mm-hmm. um, which is different from cropland, which is different from the industrial agricultural model. So what we do then is we put. Our small herd, we have a, a breed called Dexters, mm-hmm. which evolved in Ireland. So they're very self-sufficient. They birth very easily. Um, they're used to the cold weather. They can live in cold weather. They don't need to be put in shelters during the winter. And they're very docile, uh, biddable. Mm. So it's a very easy breed uh, for uh, small farmers like me. Uh, to use. And what we do, it's called rotational grazing. We just move them from one limited section to another limited section, right around in a big, big, big circle, all grazing season long, so that by the time they return to the beginning of the circle, that patch of pasture has had weeks to rest and regenerate. So you never exhaust it, and you just keep spreading the the, um, fertilizer all around and that <laughs> over time increases the health of the pastures yeah interesting uh it just it just reminded me uh you were talking about the fertilizer i uh and i was just laughing thinking about i read a book by gene logsdon called holy shit um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just about all the different way you know he goes through all the different ways that you can you know use uh various kinds of uh, animal fertilizer and and he talks about the some di- some different stuff that I don't know as much um but he also tells a story about the fact that like I guess he says in the turn I think it was the 19th or 20th century in China
China uh, that people were uh, locking up their um, the manure um, because that was the only way to fertilize before industrial fertilization um, uh, efforts. And so like people were as protective of the manure from their animals as the animals themselves. Right, it, was yes. so, it was so valuable, um, which I just think is an amazing uh, kind of story. Um, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah we have. Uh- we uh, um, really believe it's been, it's really been successful for us and we get to feed, I don't know, it's hard to divide it up, but between our chickens and eggs and honey and beef, and if I were capable of it, I could do milk as well, but I'm not because I had a stroke and my left hand doesn't work and I can't milk a cow, but if I could do the milk as well. We'll just put that out of the, I just wanted to say, we feed 11 or 12 families Mm. um, out of our farm with the most nutritious and tasty food. Um, It's, it's, it's for us very satisfying that we can supply that kind of product uh, to people. And how many, uh, I think I sort of saw it on your website, but you've been doing this for roughly, it was like 10 years it's getting close to 10 years. Yeah. I, um, I got, I think I got the cattle beginning in 2015. Okay. I don't remember exactly. Um, and my, the, the size of the herd has expanded and contracted like a couple of summers ago, we had a drought and, uh, I had too many livestock for my pastures and I had to make the decision to send, um, more than I normally would have to the slaughterhouse. Um, by the way, that also is something that we do very uh, humanely. Our cattle live their entire lives on our property, and they are never moved anywhere in a trailer until it's time for them to be processed. And um, we go to uh, places that uh, you know do this well and do it humanely, um, and, and then do a very good job of cutting the meat and packing it and so forth. Yeah. Well, can, and, and maybe that's as good of place as any, I mean, I, again, I like, I have kind of, uh, I don't know, sometimes I think like long to have a little bit more space and we're not really sure, uh, you know, what that would look like for our family, but, um, so I have lots of questions just like more on the particulars. <laughs> uh, but like theologically, I, I think the other reason that I find this so rich is is sort of considerations of, you know, um, what what do we miss um, if we aren't attending to uh, our natural environment in this way theologically? Well, how does that help us understand the life of faith um, and and sort of um, and, you know, it seems to me it's a kind of, you know, we could talk about wisdom, like what is the wisdom of all of this? like of of living a life more consonant uh with um the the natural world but you use the phrase humanely there um so could you talk a little bit about how you understand this uh you, you know um like as as a christian as a theologian what does that mean for you to to treat these um animals uh, the way that you do yeah great question of course you know, uh, I, I should have mentioned that we've put 90% of our land into a conservation easement. Mm. The 10% that is exempted is the lot on which our house sits. Um, but the, the rest of it is all in a conservation easement. And in the easement, in the whereas clauses, 
we had written, whereas the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and human beings are to be stewards of the Lord's creation, knowing that it is a stewardship, not a possession. Uh, and so something to that effect we put into our conservation easement. And, you know, like even some of the local people, Chad, have said to me, we're so proud of what you're doing. You took out a burned out old place that was worthless, and now you've turned it back into a productive farm and you're feeding people and you're making the community stronger. You know, and I think that that's a lot of it um, for me. Um I also think that, you know, I've lived in New York City, I've lived in Jersey City, I've lived in Bratislava, Slovakia. I know the urban life, Yeah, you, you know, and uh, I think it's, you know, when I lived in Manhattan, I said to my wife, this would be great if you had a lot of money and no kids. <laughs> and I think that is kind of a prophetic statement because these urban centers are depopulating the young families can't afford to live in them anymore. Right. And, and their school, even their schools are being, um, getting in trouble because of the population exodus. And I think the problem for a lot of people who live in an urban or suburban environment is they don't really have a firsthand acquaintance with how nature works. Mm-hmm. You know, they really don't. They, 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 they have a kind of a Bambi movie uh, Disney movie kind of view of nature. And look at nature is based upon predation. It's called, it's called, used to be called the food chain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the insects feed on the mammals and suck their blood, but the birds eat the insects and, you know, on and on through the food chain. And um, uh, yeah, I could make a better illustration than that, but you get the point. Um and you have to understand that. Sometimes I go into my chicken coop to collect the eggs, and there's a big, fat black snake yeah. curled up inside the nest eating my eggs. <laughs> now, what am I supposed to do about that? Yeah. I love black snakes because they're immune to the venom of copperheads and rattlesnakes, and they get big and they even eat copperheads. They drive away the venomous snakes. So... I really don't want to kill black snakes, but I don't want a black snake eating my <laughs> eggs either. So actually, the solution we can't, you know, came up with finally is I have a neighbor a mile down the road who has little kids, and they're trying to garden, and they have copperheads coming into their garden. Mm. So he said, said, anytime you have a black snake, call me, and I'll come over, and we'll capture it and take it over and put it in my garden. <laughs> and that that's how we've you know that's how we've moved moved them around you know i have a hundred acres and the, the the snakes are free to live every anywhere on the property except on my little half acre curtilage right around my house you know i just and copperheads and rattlesnakes they're not welcome yeah you know? <laughs> right yeah yeah, well, and, and that seems to be like a, a little bit more of like that, that attentiveness to the purpose of the things rather than just getting rid of it uh, because it's a nuisance and saying, all right, well, this is a nuisance. Let's kill it. Um, and, you know, that that's the kind of thing I think that also has been so fascinating 
uh, for, for us in this whole process. Like we have a few more birds this year cause we're doing more composting. And I think the birds have been killing a lot of more of the insects. Um, and so we have a little bit more live backyard than we've ever had before. Um, and we grow some ornamental flowers, which help attract the pollinators. We don't have yeah. bees. We don't have bees yet. Uh, but I'd like to get some bees, um, you know, and our dogs naturally kind of run off squirrels, but like, you know, you have all these different elements that, that you're trying to bring into balance, right? You're trying exactly. to bring yeah. and, and that like, and that whole idea of finding a balance, uh, within the cycle rather than just attacking everything with a, a, a you know, some kind of pesticide or some kind of kill, thing to kill something, uh, like how, okay, how do how do I find the balance here? Um, that whole process has been really fascinating to me. Right. And yet then understanding that killing is a part of nature. Yeah, right. Predation is part of nature. And what you're trying to do is integrate a human being into a natural habitat. We, 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 we human beings are animals. We're part of nature. Yeah. And we can learn to live in a kind of harmony with it. That's why the symbol of our farm, our farm is named St. Gall Farm. I'll tell you okay. that story. Yeah. But the symbol is of a bear holding a cut log, a piece of firewood. And that reflects the legend of St. Gall, who um, was an Irish monk who converted the pagan Swiss to Christianity. <laughs> and the legend, and they were the, the pagan Swiss at that time, seventh, eighth century, were, were bear worshippers. They worshipped mm. bears. And and so to convince them of the superior power of the Christian God. St. Gaul evidently went to live in a cave, a bear cave, and or at least le that's the legend. He went to live in a bear cave, and he made a deal with the bear. If you bring me firewood, I'll give you a loaf of bread when I cook <laughs> it. And that for that exchange, that, that was the story of St. Gaul. And that's why we named our farm St. Gaul Farm, because we actually have black bears running up and down our mountain. Mm. And and so you you know in part of this process of learning uh you know the place of of you know killing of harvesting these animals uh you, you're trying to simultaneously in, uh, improve their life while they're alive um, but also yeah. uh, make good use of them uh, in their death and one thing that has struck me again uh, you know is this idea that uh, the best food for us is the healthiest animal. Um, yes. and, and it's a, it's a, we, you know, it's kind of a weird idea. It's like, no, I want them to be the healthiest possible animal they can be. Um, because when it's time, uh, to eat that it'll actually be the most nourishing. Um, and the least nourishing is the sickest or the, you know, the most, um, you know, in some ways like sort of unhappy, uh, animal. That's right. And who wants to eat that? You know, um, look at uh, a couple of years ago. Consumer Reports put out a very detailed study of so-called um, meatless meat, uh, which I just call fake meat. <laughs> and, and um, of course, the appetite for this is in very urban situations, alienated from natural processes, I would argue. Right. In any case, Consumer Reports, you know, does everything science-based. And I, I even put this article up. Um, on my website, because I think it's so important. Because if you could convince people to eat so-called meatless meat, 
what you would do is you would be putting a hyper strain on cropland, which would now have to produce all this nutrition. Uh, and if you look at the world's agricultural lands, only 30% is suitable for crop farming. Hmm. 70% of it is pasture land, which mm-hmm. de- then depends on livestock grazing. And if you could switch to meatless meat, you would be putting hyper pressures on croplands. And then um, um, you would, the, the pasture lands would then be, go to go back to the wilderness or something like that. Maybe some people think that's a good idea. I don't. Um, but then just looking at the product itself, Consumer Reports scientifically analyzed these meatless meat products. This is all high-class junk food. It's all hyper-processed. It's full of sodium and sugar and all sorts of uh, chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so you to make it taste like meat, when it, and it's actually quite a failure because it doesn't really right. replace, replace nutritious meat like beef. Yeah. And, and um, so another kind of uh, question that I have for you is, is, I mean, of course, all, all like I, well, first responding to what you just said. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, th- that's another interesting part. Like how would you naturally fertilize all those lands? If you didn't have cattle, you wouldn't be able to fertilize them. So then you'd have to be using artificial fertilizers. Um, you know, and so it, it, it is just a, it seems like a, a fairly, um, yeah, like you said, sort of a, something that someone dreams up if they've never actually lived uh, in a place where the food comes from. <laughs> right, right. Or le- learned how to grow their own food or, or been in touch with someone who grows food in a natural way. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, so think, I, I just want to finish that. Yeah. What, what motivates me as a theologian mm-hmm. to do this Um, um uh, as a Lutheran theologian, you know, I've been centered in the redemptive gospel of Christ um, uh, and the importance of the, as it were, the second article of the creed, which is the center of the creed. And talk about being Christocentric or something like that. But as I've grown more and more, I become much more sensitized to the importance of the first article of the creed. Um, that the whole, the whole of our natural world is an ever-renewed gift from our gracious God and Creator, um, who asks only our gratitude and our responsible stewardship of His gifts. And that has become theologically much more important to me than it was in the past. When I lived in the city, and I didn't think about these kinds of things, um, so that's my quick answer. Yeah, well, that's that's really helpful. And I so I have kind of a strange role um, at where, how I teach. I teach part time at an undergraduate school called St. Louis University and part time at uh, the um, diocesan seminary for the Roman Catholic Church. I teach Latin and Greek mostly, um, although technically I'm, a his, you know, my degrees in historical theology. Um, I've only ever been able to get jobs because I can teach languages. Um, <laughs> but um, but I teach a lot of these Catholic guys who come from uh, the Midwest, basically, um, and all over the Midwest. And one of the things that uh, fascinated me as I got to know the guys uh, was how many of them came from farms. Um, and I went to seminary at Princeton Seminary. 
And I don't remember there being anyone who at least talked about being from farms. Now, maybe some were, um, but uh, but they just were embarrassed or something. But essentially, no one. Um, and now here I am with all these guys who they have a real um, appreciation for and uh, and a kind of connection to um, their their land. Um, and that's like part. And one of the things I've learned about being a diocesan uh, priest is that you want to return to the place where you're from. Um, and that's part of their formation. Um, and it just strikes me as like, I mean, I, I grew up in a more evangelical kind of Baptistic uh, kind of uh, um, uh, environment um, and house, um, but we were not connected uh, to the land very much. That was not something that was all that important to us. And I just, I do kind of wonder too, within sort of the, the different Christian streams, as it were, are there some of them that are more for various, uh, you know, historical reasons or maybe even theological reasons, uh, more attuned to the land? Um, so it's, you know, part of what you were talking about there is, you, you know, as a Lutheran, uh, you know, and I know that Lutherans are actually tend to have a greater population. Uh, or at least have more churches and, and rural places. Um, is there something that you see in even your own tradition that uh, connects you to the land in a different way? Well, sure. I mean, we learned in, you know, we used to memorize Luther's catechism. I don't know how, how often that happens anymore, but um, I had to. And when we came to the first article of the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Luther, Luther says, now, what does this mean? And then we, re we replied, I believe that God has created me and all that exists and given and preserved my body and soul. And then he goes on and lists all these various gifts of the natural life. And you know, so... Like I said, I'm I've, as I've aged, I've kind of returned to a much greater appreciation of the first article of the creed. And there are hymns that in the Lutheran tradition, I'm not, now I'm not sure about this, for the beauty of the earth, for the beauty of the skies. That might not be a, 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 a hymn that's Lutheran in origin, but it was certainly one that we sang. Right. And, you know, I think it's a tragedy that we've gotten away from Thanksgiving services. Mm. Um, it's not, of course, a Christian holiday. It's a national holiday. But that that's where you sang hymns like, um, uh, Come ye thankful people, come raise the song of Harvest Home, mm. all be safely gathered in ere the winter storms begin. God <laughs> our maker doth provide all our wants to be supplied. Come, ye thankful people, come, pray, raise the song of Harvest Home. And I think when you habitually sing a hymn like that, it gets in, you know, it gets uh, burned into your memory banks or something like that. <laughs> well, it's certainly burned into yours, it appears. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I guess I just, um, it, uh, like I said, it, it's just increasingly um, energized me thinking about uh, these things in different ways uh, to connect to them uh, to uh, to my theological work as well. But um, what, just as a practical question, you mentioned your you know you have um, uh, 
you had a stroke and so you're unable to use your left hand. Is that right? Right. And, yeah. and, and so you're able, I mean, you know, I, I just, uh, I know that <laughs> farming is not easy work. Uh, and so you're able to do that. Uh, that's, I mean, that, that seems pretty impressive. Uh, eight years on a farm, um, and, uh, or eight years with cattle and. Well, some- let me say, Chad, I have a faithful and, and, impressive uh, life uh, spouse now going on to 49 years and she is fully in, uh, in partnership with me on this whole deal yeah. in fact i couldn't do it without her yeah and we also have an adult son um who's a veteran and um disabled um and he lives with us okay and uh, he also helps out and, and again without his help it wouldn't be possible or I would have to hire a hand or something like that. Yeah. But, you know, basically, um, the real answer I want to give here is you can judiciously use a, a low level of technology. Mm-hmm. You don't have to buy big, fancy machines, but you can judiciously select, you know, mm-hmm. a, a compact tractor and uh, imp- implements that can be run on a UTV rather than a tractor. And, and so you, you can use this kind of machinery um, to do the farming, the farming work, which replaces a lot of time and a lot of manpower uh-huh. uh, on the farm. But, you know, you, you have to, like I'm using the word judiciously, <laughs> don't, don't get suckered into buying a tractor that's three times more powerful than what you need. Right, just or or equipment that does things like everybody's getting away, Chad, from tilling. Mm. Um, you have to do a little bit of tilling, but plowing up the earth year after year after year destroys the soil biome, the the microorganisms that live in your soil, and so you want to really minimize tilling, which means that you have to learn how to. Um, uh, how to uh, how to grow cover crops or mm-hmm. interseed your pastures or so forth with a with a different uh, less environmentally stressful kind of of machinery. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, what? Yeah, one of the things we've let our yard go to seed, uh, but I think Missouri fairly naturally grows a lot of. Um, uh, oh, um, clover. Um, and so that clover is, and, and the chickens love it. Sure, um, yeah. And so it's like, yeah, for, so we're pretty lucky in Missouri that that's, that's pretty easy to grow, um, versus just, you know, trying to, you know, go to home Depot and get whatever specific kind of grass, you know, I don't even know what grass that the, the Scots is or whatever, but. Right. right. And the chickens <laughs> are your machinery. They're the ones who keep, keep the, uh, Mow the grass. Yep. Yeah. And so has that been, I mean, another thing, um, you know, this just reminds me of like Wendell Berry, uh, uh, in one of the earlier books. Um, but he talks about the, like you, you mentioned working with your wife and working with your son. Um, and so, but that this idea of like the house, the home as a place of productivity and cooperation, um, and sort of how a lot of modern homes become a place where they're uh, sort of like a bunkhouse and everybody goes out, um, and then, um, and nobody actually works together, um, within the family. Um, and, and so has that been a, a, 
and a, a sort of a bonding. Um, I mean, I'm sure trying at times, uh, like, I don't mean to say it's all, you know, with the rose colored glasses, you know, it's all, it's all perfect. Uh, but has that been an important part of your family life? I think so. I mean, we feel, my wife and I feel like we live in paradise <laughs> and we do. I mean, it's a beautiful mountain valley that we're sitting perched on, you know, up in our, uh, and it's, quiet and peaceful and safe and serene and just the, even the views are breathtaking and the feeling that way we don't feel the need you know to go on a cruise or something like that in fact that would never appeal to us anyway <laughs> that kind of thing you know but we live in paradise and um yeah, over the years, we've always every evening sat down on the couch with a glass of wine and talked about the day. But more and more, this farming experience has required partnership and cooperation uh, in a household economy. Yeah. And I think that that's a good model. It brings, uh, it brings especially when everybody knows they're needed. Mm -hmm. that we we can't do this without each of us doing something that they can do yeah and that feeling of being needed in a meaningful cause um um is i think i think very valuable and i think i would like to if people are listening to this podcast who are pastors or um theologians and they're looking at the diminishing prospects uh, in church and in academy uh, and so forth. And they're like you looking for an alternative for life. I would really like to lift up we did as a model. Because you can use your 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 employment in the world if again if you're frugal and you don't go on cruises, but, <laughs> but you, you invest your money rather in get it buying yourself a patch of land and figuring out how you can produce good food for people. And take pleasure, satisfaction, not only that you're being ecologically responsible, not only that you're renewing a certain piece of the earth under your control, but that you're giving nutritious, valuable and nutritious food uh, to the neighbors that you're marketing it to and so forth. I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And it keeps your, your spiritual and psychological life in balance. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, like you say, uh, increasingly, you know, fewer and fewer jobs, certainly in in academia, um, and but even a lot of pastors, I think, are going to have to sort of do some bivocational stuff um, from a lot of what what I'm seeing and and hearing. Um, well, one one very so I had one kind of last specific question, and what you just said kind of reminded me of it. I thought I saw on Facebook that you got a certain kind of grant because, uh, like, the other thing, like that that I look at, you know, around here is like I think, well, if I wanted to buy some land, it's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um. And and so some of the hard, you know, I and I work at like I said, I work at SLU, so I work in downtown St. Louis, so it's it would be a drive uh, to anywhere that had. Uh, a decent amount of land, but even within like 45 minutes or an hour drive of St. Louis, uh, it's 
a lot of the land is very expensive. Um, and, and so that's one of the, I mean, that can be kind of, um, prohibitive from having too big of a space. Uh, but were you, I mean, so were you able to buy the land? I mean, I guess you're in a more rural area. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's it was cheap. Well, you said 2005, so you've been doing this for years. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, could you talk a little bit about even how you got started with acquiring the land and that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I, for one thing, you had you, you if you're interested in doing this, you got to start searching. Yeah, um, I searched for almost three years before I found this property, um, and of course, th- there's a whole combination of things you just mentioned. Is it affordable? Is it uh, at a reasonable distance from um, uh, urban center for hospital, medicine, emergency services, and marketing. Um, you know, you, that's got to be true. Uh, is it affordable? Uh, can you do something with it? Um, can you build a house there? Can you make a home there? Can you can you begin uh, uh, in small scale intensive farming there? Um, all that is stuff that you have to research and figure out what would work for you. Um, in Virginia, we have um, a very excellent uh, conservation easement program. And what that did was it allowed us to buy these uh, this land and put it in the easement. And that was amounted to about then you have to pay for a rather detailed uh, appraisal of the value of the land. And then 30% of that appraisal gets returned to you in a tax, um, uh, what do they call that? Not a tax refund, but a tax credit. Mm -hmm. So that's very valuable in terms of reducing your taxes. Um, And it, it really basically paid for about a third of the cost of the land we bought. And so we use the conservation easements to leverage the purchase and addition of the parcels mm. to build up our 100 acres. And then when I started farming, Chad, uh, I had been in earlier, before farming, I had been in a USDA program called WIP. Wildlife Habitat Habitat Improvement Projects or something like, or programs, something like that. And so that's how I got involved with USDA. And I got to know these people and they were helping me with quail habitat and turkey habitat and deer habitat and stuff like that. And um, I said, you know, I'm thinking about starting a farm on my pasture land. And they said, oh, well, we've got, we've got another program that could help you. And so um, I got involved in that, and, and that helped. I also, um, um, when I started farming, I had about um, a half of my woodlands uh, uh, cut, and I used the income from that timber cutting. Uh-huh. Of course, this was very selective. I went through the woods with a spray can and said, take this tree, but not that tree, through the whole property. So that it would would be done according to my standards in a very good way, but all that income from the timber cutting then, and from the USDA grants help pay for the infrastructure on the farm, mm. essentially the fencing and the water watering system. Interesting. And now, uh, because I've been so, and then I won an award some years ago for stewardship forest 
for um, regional best in stewardship of forests, something like that. And uh, I've been kind of their poster boy on some of this stuff. (laughs) And uh, so now I'm in a grant for the next five years that will help me to continue continue to uh, reseed my pastures to better quality grasses. Yeah, well, and you you did send me earlier this morning. Uh, there's a short article on some of the um, ha- this habitat improvement that you did um, with. Uh, uh, I think it, well, it had a lot to do with the deer population, right. um, and uh, so how you were able to um, encourage um, the growth of buck. I guess, I guess was was kind of the the big the big thing that you were able to do. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. I mean. Um, I regard, you know, the the deer and the bear on my property as not only wildlife that I host, but also another source of nutrition. And if you don't control, especially the deer population, the deer are going to, you know, as people know in suburban areas, they'll just keep they'll just keep propagating and they'll eat everything, and and then finally they'll become malnourished because there's so many of them and there's so little food uh, after a certain point. So uh, I subscribe to a program called Quality Deer Management, which requires you to um, every season to take more doe than you do bucks uh, to control the population. And, and so, and I also personally have the principle, I don't shoot anything that I'm not willing to eat. So -hmm. that's another source of protein for us. And um, I've supplied to uh, the neighbors, poor neighbors who need food. Um, I provide uh, uh, venison for them. Um, and, you know, then I only will shoot a buck that's really big or something, a really old guy, you know, who's lived a long <laughs> life. And I, people need to understand, if I do, if a hunter doesn't kill a deer humanely and quickly, that deer will either die in a car accident and possibly injure a human being in a car, or it will be devoured by a bear uh, if it's a fawn, or it will be devoured by coyotes when it's old and sick and can't escape anymore. And those are pretty horrible deaths, you Mm -hmm. know. So in terms of understanding that predation is part of nature, and we are natural, we are natural beings, bodily beings who are also part of nature, and we need protein, uh, and we also need to respond manage the population of the wildlife in our regions and so forth. Uh, those are the principles that, that I apply to this um, um, deer hunting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I was surprised uh, to read that. I was thinking, you know, a lot of the pictures I saw were mostly of your cattle and, and some of your produce, but yeah, a whole other element to what you can do with the acreage is supporting their, uh, the, these habitats. Um, well, I think we're kind of running up here on uh, about an hour. Um, is there any kind of final uh, word uh, of encouragement or, uh, you know, last thoughts, anything, anything particular like, um, you know, that, that you've uh, 
you know, want to leave to listeners that you've learned uh, from this journey with the with the wildlife and the agriculture? I think a lot of us nowadays, because of the accumulating crises of global crises, are inclined to be like Epicurus, the ancient philosopher Epicurus, who said the whole world is friggin' crazy. Just (laughs) retreat to your own garden and tend it and do science and philosophy and let the world go away. Well, I I think that can be a profound temptation in these days. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think what I'm advocating is Epicurean. I think what I'm advocating is something like Ellen Davis, the Old Testament theologian, in her book on culture and agriculture in ancient Israel, was arguing for. Um, If you're able, grab a little piece of land under your own control, and at least as a witness to the wider society, um, do something meaningful as as an avocation, if not transitioning into a vocation. Do something that is meaningful for your own involvement in nature and your own relationship uh, to society. Uh, And I hope what I've offered in my St. Gall Farm is a kind of a Christian and theological model of that. Awesome. Well, my guest today has been uh, Dr. Paul Hinlicky. I just want to thank him for the time that he's taken this morning um, and uh, the uh, encouragement even that he's been uh, to me through all these uh, interviews and conversations. Um, It has been an absolute pleasure uh, getting to know you a little bit. Thank you, Chad. It's been a pleasure to be getting to know you as well. All right.